Hi everybody, welcome back. Thank you for joining me today in our reading of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Today I'm hoping to tackle three chapters in this book because they're fairly short chapters. I think we're going to make it through. We're getting close to the end. Today we are going to be reading chapter 49, 50, and 51, starting with chapter 49. Francie came away from her first chemistry lecture in a glow. In one hour, she had found out that everything was made up of atoms which were in constant, continual motion. She grasped the idea that nothing was ever lost or destroyed. Even if something was burned up or left to rot away, it did not disappear from the face of the earth. It changed into something else. Gases, liquids, and powders. Everything, decided Francie, after that first lecture, was vibrant with life, and there was no death in chemistry. She was puzzled as to why learned people didn't adopt chemistry as a religion. The drama of the restoration, aside from the time-consuming reading required, was easy to manage after her home study of Shakespeare. She had no worries about that course, nor the chemistry course, but when it came to beginning French, she was lost. It wasn't really beginning French. The instructor, working on the knowledge that his students either had taken it before and flunked it, or had already had it in high school, sloughed over the preliminaries and got right down to translation. Francie, shaky enough regarding English grammar, spelling, and punctuation, didn't stand a chance with the French language. She'd never passed the course. All she could do was memorize vocabulary each day and try to hang on. She studied going back and forth on the L. She studied in her rest periods and ate her meals with a book propped up on the table before her. She typed out her assignments on one of the machines in the instruction room of the communications corporation. She was never late or absent, and she asked nothing more than to pass at least two of her courses. The boy who had befriended her in the bookstore became her guardian angel. His name was Ben Blake, and he was a most amazing fellow. He was a senior in the Masspeth High School. He was editor of the school magazine, president of his class, played halfback on the football team, and was an honor student. For the past three summers, he had been taking college courses. He would finish high school with more than one year of college work out of the way. In addition to his schoolwork, he put in his afternoons working for a law firm. 
He drew up briefs, served summonses, examined deeds and records, and searched out precedents. He was familiar with the state's statutes and was completely capable of trying a case in court. Besides doing so well in school, he earned $25 a week. His firm wanted him to come into the office full-time after his graduation from high school, read law with them, and eventually take the bar exam. But Ben was contemptuous of non-college lawyers. He had a great Midwestern college picked out. He planned to complete work for an AB degree and then enter law school. At 19, his life was planned out in a straight, unswerving line. After passing the bar exam, he was all set to take over a country law practice. He believed that a young lawyer had more political opportunities in a small town practice. He even had the practice picked out. He was to succeed a distant relative an aged country lawyer who had a well-established practice. He was in constant touch with his future predecessor and received long weekly letters of guidance from him. Ben planned to take over this practice and await his turn to be county prosecutor. By agreement, the lawyers in this small county rotated the office among them. That would be his start in politics. He'd work hard, get himself well-known and trusted, and eventually be elected to the House of Representatives from his state. He'd serve faithfully and be re-elected, and then he'd come back and work himself up to the governorship of his state. That was his plan. The amazing thing about the whole idea was that those who knew Ben Blake were sure that everything would come out the way he planned it. In the meantime, in that summer of 1917, the object of his, of his ambitions, a vast Midwestern state, lay dreaming beneath the hot prairie sun, lay dreaming among its great wheat fields and its unending orchards of Winesap, Baldwin, and Northern Spy Apples, lay dreaming unaware that the man who, would, who planned to occupy its White House as its youngest governor was, at the moment, a boy in Brooklyn. That was Ben Blake, well-dressed, gay, handsome, brilliant, sure of himself, well-liked by the boys, with all the girls crazy about him, and Francie Nolan tremulously in love with him. She saw him every day. His fountain pen flashed through her French assignments. He checked her chemistry work and cleared up obscurities in the restoration plays. He helped her plan her next summer's courses and, obligingly enough, tried to plan out the rest of her life for her. As the end of summer came near, two things saddened Francie. Soon, she wouldn't be seeing Ben every day, and she wasn't going to pass the French course. She took Ben into her confidence about the latter sadness. Don't be silly, he told her briskly. You paid for the course. You sat in class all summer. You're not a moron. You'll pass. Q-E-D. No, she laughed. I'll flunk P-D-Q. 
We'll have to cram you for the final exam then. We'll need a whole day. Now where can we go? My house? Suggested Francie timidly. No, there'll be people around. He thought for a moment. I know a good place. Meet me Sunday morning at nine, corner gates and Broadway. He was waiting for her when she stepped off the trolley. She wondered where in the world he'd take her in that neighborhood. He took her to the stage door of a theater given over to Broadway shows on the first lap of the road. He got through the magic door merely by saying, Morning, Pop, to the white-haired man sitting on a tilted chair in the sun beside the open door. Francie then discovered that this amazing boy was a Saturday night usher in this theater. She had never been backstage before and she was so excited that she almost ran a temperature. The stage seemed vast and the roof of the theater house seemed lost, so far away it was. As she walked across the stage, she changed her stride and walked slowly and stiff-leggedly as she remembered Harold Clarence walking. When Ben spoke, she turned slowly with dramatic intensity and said in a throaty voice, You... She paused, then with meaning. Spoke? Want to see something? He asked. He pulled the curtain and she saw the asbestos roll up like a giant's shade. He turned on the foots and she walked out on the apron and looked over the thousand dark, empty, waiting, raked seats. She tilted her head and threw her voice to the last row of the gallery. Hello out there, she called, and her voice seemed amplified a hundred times in the dark, waiting emptiness. Look, he asked good-naturedly, are you more interested in the theater or your French? Why, the theater, of course. It was true. Then and there she renounced all other ambitions and went back to her first love, the stage. Ben laughed as he cut off the foots. He brought down the curtain and placed two chairs facing each other. In some way, he had gotten hold of the examination papers for five years back. From them, he had made a master exam paper using the questions asked most frequently and those seldom asked. Most of the day, he drilled Francie in those questions and answers. Then he had her memorize a page from Molière's Le Tartuffe and its English translation. He explained, there will be one question in the exam tomorrow that will be absolute Greek to you. Don't attempt to answer it. Do this. State frankly that you can't answer the question, but that you are offering in its stead an excerpt from Molière with translation. Then write down what you've memorized and you'll get away with it. But suppose they ask for that exact passage in a regular question. They won't. I picked out a very obscure passage. Evidently, she got away with it, for she passed the examination in French. True, she passed with the lowest mark, but she consoled herself with the idea that passing was passing. She did very well on the chemistry and drama examinations. 
Acting on Ben's instructions, she came back for the transcript of her grades a week later and met him by arrangement. He took her to Hooler's for a chocolate soda. How old are you, Francie? He asked over the sodas. She calculated rapidly. She was 15 at home, 17 at work. Ben was 19. He'd never speak to her again if he knew she was only 15. He saw her hesitation and said, Anything you say may be used against you. She took her courage into her two hands and quavered boldly. I'm 15. She hung her head in shame. Hmm. I like you, Francie. And I love you, she thought. I like you as much as any girl I've ever known. But, of course, I have no time for girls. Not even for an hour, say, on Sunday, she ventured. My few free hours belong to my mother. I'm all that she has. Francie had never heard of Miss Blake until that moment, but she hated her because she preempted those free hours, a few of which would have made Francie happy. But I'll be thinking of you, he continued. All right, if you have a moment. He lived half an hour away from her. But if you ever need me, not for any trivial reason, of course, drop me a line and I'll manage to see you. He gave her one of the firm's cards with his full name, Benjamin Franklin Blake, written in the corner. They parted outside of Hoyler's, shaking hands warmly. See you next summer, he called back as he walked away. Francie stood looking after him until he turned the corner. Next summer, it was only September, and next summer seemed a million years away. She had enjoyed the summer school so much that she wanted to matriculate in the same college that fall, but she had no way of raising the more than $300 required for tuition. In a morning spent in studying catalogs in the 42nd Street New York Library, she discovered a college for women in which tuition was free to residents of New York. Armed with her transcripts, she went over to register. She was told that she couldn't matriculate, lacking a high school education. She explained how she had been permitted to go to summer school. Ah, that was different. Their courses were given for credit only. No degree was offered in summer courses. She asked, couldn't she take courses now without expecting a degree? No. If she were past 25, she might be permitted to enter as a special student and take courses without being a candidate for a degree. There was an alternative, however. If she was able to pass the entrance or regents examination, she would be permitted to enroll regardless of high school credits. Francie took the examinations and flunked everything but chemistry. Oh well, I should have known, she told her mother. If people could get into college that easy, no one would ever bother with high school. Why, but don't you worry, Mama. I know what the entrance examinations are now, and I'll get the books and study and take those examinations next year. And I'll pass next year. It can be done, 
and I'll do it. You'll see. Even if she had been able to enter college, it wouldn't have worked out because she was put on the day shift after all. She was now a fast and expert operator, and they needed her in the day when the traffic was heaviest. They assured her that she could go back on night work in the summer if she wished. She got her next raise. She was now earning $17.50 a week. Again, the lonely nights, lonely evenings. Francie roamed the Brooklyn streets in the lovely nights of fall and thought of Ben. If you ever need me, write, and I'll manage to see you. Yes, she needed him, but she was sure he'd never come if she wrote. I'm lonely. Please come and walk with me and talk to me. In his firm schedule of life, there was no heading labeled loneliness. The neighborhood seemed the same, yet it was different. Gold stars had appeared in some of the tenement windows. The boys still got together on the corner or in front of a penny candy store of an evening. But now, often as not, one of the boys would be in Kahaki. The boys stood around harmonizing. They sang a shanty in old shanty town and when you wore a tulip, dear old girl, I'm sorry I made you cry and other songs. Sometimes the soldier boy led them in war songs. Over there, KKK Katie and the Rose of No Man's Land. But no matter what they sang, always they finished off with one of Brooklyn's own folk songs. Mother McCree, when Irish eyes are smiling, let me call you sweetheart, or the band played on. And Francie walked past them in the evenings and wondered why all the songs sounded so sad. Chapter 50 Sissy expected her baby late in November. Katie and Evie went to a lot of trouble to avoid discussing it with Sissy. They were certain it would be another stillbirth, and they reasoned that the less said about it, the less Sissy would have to remember afterward. But Sissy did such a revolutionary thing that they had to talk about it. She announced that she was going to have a doctor when the baby came, and that she was going to a hospital. Her mother and sisters were stunned. No Romley woman had ever had a doctor at childbirth, ever. It didn't seem right. You called a midwife, a neighbor woman, or your mother, and you got through the business secretively and behind closed doors and kept the men out. Babies were women's business. As for hospitals, everyone knew you went there only to die. Sissy told them that they were way behind the times, that midwives were things of the past. Besides, she informed them proudly, she had no say in the matter. Her Steve insisted on the doctor and the hospital. And that wasn't all. Sissy was going to have a Jewish doctor. Why, Sissy? Why? asked her shocked sisters. Because Jewish doctors are more sympathetic than Christian ones at a time like that. I've nothing against the Jews, began Katie, but look, just because 
Dr. Ehrenstein's people look at a star when they pray, and our people look at a cross, has nothing to do with whether he's a good doctor or not. But I'd think you'd want a doctor of your own faith around at a time of... Katie was going to say death, but checked herself in time. Birth. Oh, sugar, said Sissy contemptuously. Like should stick to like. You don't see Jews calling in Christian doctors, said Evie, thinking she had made a telling point. Why should they, countered Sissy, when they and everybody else knows that the Jewish doctors are smarter? The birth was the same as all the others. Sissy had her usual easy time made easier by the skill of the doctor. When the baby was delivered, she closed her eyes tightly. She was afraid to look at it. She had been so sure that this one would live, but now that the time had come, she felt in her heart that it wouldn't be so. She opened her eyes finally. The baby was lying on a nearby table. It was still and blue. She turned her head away. Again, she thought. Again and again and again. Eleven times. Oh God, why couldn't you let me have one? Just one out of eleven. In a few years, my time of childbearing will be over. For a woman to die at last. Knowing that she has never given life. Oh God. God, why have you put your curse on me? Then she heard a word. She heard a word that she had never known. She heard the word oxygen. Quick, oxygen, she heard the doctor say. She watched him work over her baby. She saw a miracle that transcended the miracles of the saints her mother had told her about. She saw the dead blue change to living white. She saw an apparently lifeless child draw breath. For the first time, she heard the cry of a child she had born. Is, is it alive? She asked, afraid to believe. What else? The doctor shrugged his shoulders eloquently. You've got as fine a boy as I've ever seen. You're sure he'll live? Why not? Again, the shrug, unless you let him fall out of a three-story window. Sissy took his hands and covered them with kisses, and Dr. Aaron Ehrenstein was not embarrassed about her emotionalism the way a Gentile doctor would have been. She named the baby Stephen Aaron. I've never seen it to fail, said Katie. Let a childless woman adopt a baby and bang! A year or two later, she's sure to have one of her own. It's as if God recognized her good intentions at last. It's nice that Sissy has two to bring up, because it's no good to bring up one child alone. Little Sissy and Stevie are just two years apart, said Francie, almost like Neely and me. Yes, they'll be company for each other. Sissy's living son was the great wonder of the family until Uncle Willie Flitman gave them something else to talk about. Willie tried to enlist in the army and was turned down, whereupon he threw up his job with the milk company, came home, announced that he was a failure, and went to bed. 
He wouldn't get up next morning or the morning after. He said he was going to stay in bed and never get up as long as he lived. All his life he had lived as a failure and now he was going to die as a failure. And the sooner the better, he stated. Evie sent for her sisters. Evie, Sissy, Katie, and Francie stood around the big brass bed in which the failure had ensconced himself. Willie took one look at the circle of strong-willed Romilly woman and wailed, I'm a failure. He pulled the blanket up over his head. Evie turned her husband over to Sissy and Francie watched Sissy go to work on him. She put her arms around him and held the futile little fellow to her breast. Sissy convinced him that not all the brave men were in trenches, that many a hero was risking his life daily for his country in a munitions factory. She talked and talked until Willie got so excited about helping to win the war that he jumped out of bed and made Aunt Evie scurry around getting him his pants and shoes. Steve was foreman now at a munitions factory on Morgan Avenue. He got Willie a good paying job there with time and a half for overtime. It was a tradition in the Romley family that the men kept for themselves any tips or overtime money that they earned. With his first check for overtime work, Willie bought himself a bass drum and a pair of cymbals. He spent all of his evenings when he didn't have to work overtime, practicing on the drum and cymbals in the front room. Francie gave him a dollar harmonica for Christmas. He fastened it to his stick, attached the stick to his belt so he could play the harmonica like riding a bicycle no hands. He tried to manipulate the guitar, harmonica, drums, and cymbals all at once. He was practicing to be a one-man band. And so he sat in the front room evenings. He blew into the harmonica, strummed the guitar, thumped the great drum, and clashed the brass cymbals. And he grieved because he was a failure. Chapter 51 When it got too cold to go walking, Francie enrolled in two evening classes at the settlement house, sewing and dancing. She learned to decode paper patterns and to run a sewing machine. In time, she hoped to be able to make her own clothes. She learned ballroom dancing, although neither she nor her partners ever expected to set foot in something called a ballroom. Sometimes her partner was one of the brilliantine-haired neighborhood sheiks who was a snappy dancer and made her watch her steps. Sometimes he was a little old boy of 14 in knee pants and she made him watch his steps. She loved dancing and took to it instinctively. And that year began to draw to a close. What's that book you're studying, Francie? That's Neely's geometry book. What's geometry? Excuse me. Something you have to pass to get into college, Mama. Well, don't sit up too late. What news do you bring me of my mother and sisters? Katie asked the insurance collector. Well, for one thing, I just insured your sister's babies, Sarah and Stefan. 
but she's had them insured since birth. A nickel-a-week policy. This is a different policy. Endowment. What does that mean? They don't have to die to collect. They get $1,000 each when they're 18. It's insurance to get them through college. Oh my! First a doctor in a hospital to give birth, then college insurance. What next? Any male mama? asked Francie, as usual, when she got home from work. No, just a card from Evie. What does she say? Nothing, except they've got to move again on account of Willie's drumming. Where are they moving now? Evie found a one-family house in Cypress Hills. I wonder whether that's in Brooklyn. It's out East New York way, where Brooklyn changes into Queens. It's around Crescent Street, the last stop on the Broadway L. I mean, it used to be the last stop until they extended the L to Jamaica. Mary Romilly lay in her narrow white bed. A crucifix stood out on the bare wall above her head. Her three daughters and Francie, her eldest granddaughter, stood by her bed. I, I am 85 now, and I feel that this is my last time of sickness. I wait for death with the courage I gained from living. I will not speak falsely and say to you, do not grieve for me when I go. I have loved my children and tried to be a good mother, and it is right that my children grieve for me. But let your grief be gentle and brief, and let resignation creep into it. Know that I shall be happy. I shall see face to face the great saints I have loved all my life. Francie showed the snapshots to a group of girls in the recreation room. This is Annie Laurie, my baby sister. She's only 18 months old, but she runs all over the place, and you ought to hear her talk. She's cute. This is my brother, Cornelius. He's going to be a doctor. He's cute. This is my mother. She's cute and so young looking. And this is me on the roof. The roof's cute. I'm cute, said Francie with mock belligerence. We're all cute, the girls laughed. Our supervisor's cute, the old wagon. I hope she chokes. They laughed and laughed. What are we laughing at, asked Francie. Nothing. They laughed harder. Send Francie. The last time I asked for sauerkraut, he chased me out of the store, complained Neely. You've got to ask for liberty cabbage now, you dope, said Francie. Don't call each other names, chided Katie absentmindedly. Did you know they changed Hamburg Avenue to Wilson Avenue, asked Francie. War makes people do funny things, sighed Katie. You going to tell Mama? asked Neely apprehensively. No, but you're too young to go out with that kind of girl. They say she's wild, said Francie. Who wants a tame girl? I wouldn't care, only you don't know anything at all about, well, sex. I know more than you, anyhow. He put his hand on his hip and squealed in a lisping falsetto. Oh, Mama, will I have a baby if a man just kisses me? Will I, Mama? Will I? Neely, you listened that day. 
Sure, I was right outside in the hall and heard every word. Of all the low things. You listen too. Many is the time I caught you when Mama and Sissy or Aunt Evie were talking and you were supposed to be asleep in bed. That's different. I have to find out things. Check. Francie, Francie, it's seven o'clock. Get up. What for? You've got to be at work at 8.30. Tell me something new, Mama. You're 16 years old today. Tell me something new. I've been 16 for two years now. You'll have to be 16 for another year then. I'll probably be 16 all my life. I wouldn't be surprised. I wasn't snooping, said Katie indignantly. I needed another nickel for the gas man and I thought you wouldn't care. You look in my pocketbook for change many a time. That's different, said Francie. Katie held the small violet box in her hand. There were scented gold-tipped cigarettes in it. One was missing from the full box. Well, now you know the worst, said Francie. I smoked a Milo cigarette. They smell nice anyway, said Katie. Go ahead, Mama. Give me the lecture and get it over with. With so many soldiers dying in France and all, the world's not going to fall apart if you smoke a cigarette once in a while. Gee, Mama, you take all the fun out of things, like not objecting to my black lace pants last year. Well, throw the cigarettes away. I'll do no such thing. I'll scatter them in my bureau drawer. They'll make my nightgown smell nice. I was thinking, said Katie, that instead of buying each other Christmas presents this year, that we put all the money together and buy a roasting chicken and a big cake from the bakery and a pound of good coffee and... We have enough money for food, protested Francie. We don't have to use our Christmas money. I mean to give to the Tinmore girls for Christmas. No one takes lessons from them now. People say they're behind the times. They don't have enough to eat, and Miss Lizzie's always been so good to us. Well, all right, consented Francie, not very enthusiastically. Gee, Neely kicked the table leg viciously. Don't worry, Neely, laughed Francie. You'll get a present. I'll buy you fawn-colored spats this year. Oh, shut up. Don't say shut up to each other, chided Katie absentmindedly. I want to ask your advice, Mama. There was this boy I met in summer school. He said he might write, but he never has. I want to know, would it look forward if I sent him a Christmas card? Forward? Nonsense! Send the card if you feel like it. I hate all those flirty, birdie games that women make up. Life's too short. If you ever find a man you love, don't waste time hanging your head and simpering. Go right up to him and say, I love you. How about getting married? That is, she added hastily with an apprehensive look at her daughter, when you're old enough to know your own mind. I'll send the card, decided Francie. Mama, we decided, Neely and I, that we'd like coffee instead of milk punch. All right. Katie put the brandy bottle back in the cupboard. 
and make the coffee very strong and hot and fill the cups with half coffee and half hot milk and we'll toast 1918 in cafe au lait. S'il vous plaît, put in Neely. Oui, 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 said Mama. I know some French words too. Katie held the coffee pot in one hand and the saucepan of hot milk in the other and poured both into the cups simultaneously. I remember, she said, when there was no milk in the house, your father would put a lump of butter in his coffee, if we had butter. He said that butter was cream in the first place and just as good in coffee. Papa.